Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Amen. I I need to to let you know I don't know anything at all about the pastoral dunking booth. I have no knowledge whatsoever that that was even an idea. And as I think about it, I think it's a horrible idea. Because, I mean, have you ever been to the fair and seen the dunking booth? That guy's just mean. He insults everybody. Can you imagine a pastor? What would you think of your pastor insulting every person who's trying to knock him in the water? I mean, if he's really being a good pastor, it's, you can do better. Aim. Oh, you knocked me in. Do it again. I mean, how, how does that even work? That's why it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea. But I do think that it is also going to, could be really hot, and that might be, I don't know, it's too late. Let's, let's come, it's great to see you. We are in a series entitled Move. Uh, the challenge of the series is to capture the heart of Ephesians 4 and 5, where Paul is saying to believers, you've come into a new way of life. You, you have come to have a new heart. You, you've got a new self. There's a new you in Christ Jesus. And here is the pattern of your life from this day forward. You're to be saying no to the old, saying yes to the new, saying no to the old attitudes and the old approaches to the, to the same problems you will always face, and saying yes to new approaches, new, new, new uh, uh, ways of dealing with life. And, and as you do, I'm, I'm challenging you, let your mind be transformed by God's truth. Let your, uh, your life be led by the Spirit of God so that your thinking is transformed from the old to the new. You get free of the old way of living, you enter into the new way of living. And the message overall is you can let go of your past and move on to God's best in Christ. And what you can do, you should do. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 31 to chapter 5, verse 2, that you'll find on page 978 in the worship Bibles provided for you in the back of the row in front of you. Paul, in this series, as as we've seen, is laying down some very practical challenges, saying to believers, say no to this, say yes to that. And he's giving us particular instances of how that works particularly in the area of relationships. Today, he's addressing how believers should live when they are wronged. How believers should live when they are wronged. He says, verse 31, chapter 4 of Ephesians, let all bitterness, when you're wrong, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, that's the old way, along with all malice, that's the old way, that's the old approach. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's the new way. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love, verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, making himself a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Today, I want to talk with you about how you can live wronged and stay right in your relationships. How you can live wronged and stay right in your relationships. There are a few situations 
that we all experience in life that are more painful than this particular situation, then when the people who have committed to loving you in this life wrong you in this life, and because we human beings are imperfect, we can wrong each other, we can act unjustly, we can injure, we can do damage to each other intentionally or unintentionally. We can mistreat each other in ways that are undeserved and contrary to what God says is right and good. When others wrong us, it impacts us to be sure when anyone wrongs us. But when people we expect to love us, harm us, it touches us to the very core of our being. And as Paul is writing in Ephesians 3 and in Ephesians 4, he's writing specifically to believers. He's writing specifically to followers of Christ. He's writing specifically to believers who have pledged in, in, a, in a covenant way to care for each other, to love each other, to do one another good. And so when people we expect to love us harm us, it touches us to the very core of our being. We trust them. We, uh, by definition, don't expect love to do us harm. We, we expect love to aim to do us good. And so regardless of whether it comes from a husband or a wife, whether it comes from, from a mother or a father or a close friend or a son or a daughter, the disappointment uh, and the disbelief are great. And because followers of Jesus can slip back into that old selfish way of life that Christ set us free from, it's possible, it's possible that others in our church family can wrong us as well, that members and leaders can harm us in a church setting, and, and it can be very, very painful. I, I've noticed over the years that there have been a number of people who've come to Center Grove from other churches where they were hurt, and they come limping, and they come wounded, because in, in, a, in, a, in another body of Christ, there was pain, and there was harm done, and they come limping back, and they come limping here, and it's extraordinarily extraordinarily tragic in my mind. Whenever, wherever love fails, it can be very painful. And the urge to answer that wrong with a wrong of our own is as real as a way of, uh, as it can be. It's a way of making them pay for their love's failure. And for followers of Jesus, one of the greatest relationship challenges as a result is knowing how to be wronged and, and how, to, how to navigate being wronged by someone who is supposed to love you and, watch now, stay right at the same time. How to be wronged and stay right. So we want to ask the question, how, how can believers, what can believers do to keep the wrongs of others from calling out wrong from us? How can we live wrong and how can we stay right? In our passage for the weekend, Paul gives three realities that believers can't afford to ignore as they live their lives together with each other. Three realities that he drives home to us in these four verses, and they are these. He points us to the unseen power of being wronged in relationships. He points us to the unconditional priority of being right in relationships and he points us to the unfailing pattern for being both wronged and right at the same time. There is a pattern. There is a way. The unseen power of being wronged, 
the uh, unconditional priority of being right, and finally, the unfailing pattern for being both, for being both. And that is ultimately our call, to be both in those situations when someone who loves us wrongs us. I want us to take some time looking at this uh, passage this morning. And uh, I I will go ahead and tell you, I'm going to open up a couple of cans of worms. I'll try to get as many of the worms out uh, as I can. Here's something I I find that I I have to do almost every year. I have to preach almost every year at some point on forgiveness. Because this is something that we all struggle with and we struggle with constantly. And uh, so if I leave you with any unanswered questions, chances are in, in the years past I've answered your questions uh, go back and listen to some, some uh, messages online, and if you can't find them, just email my office, and we'll, we'll point you in the right direction um, of those sermons, because I have dealt with this over and over again. But I want us to see today, specifically, strategically, how we can live wronged and stay right. First, I want you to see with me in verse 31 how Paul points us to the unseen power of being wronged. There is an unseen reality. We know the power of being wronged, but there is an unseen power of being wronged. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Paul begins by describing here for us in verse 32 the powerful series of emotions or really attitudes that we all have when we're wronged. They're normal to us and uh, they're explainable to us. They're justifiable to us, particularly when believers are living and thinking in the old ways of the self that Jesus has set us free from. But they are, as Paul says, among those things that must be put away from us. So that we we get rid of all such forms of response. He's saying none of these are legitimate. Be careful when you see any of these being expressed in your life. You'll notice though with me where he begins. And this is critical for us. He begins with bitterness. And he does so specifically. And I believe he does so purposefully. Because the other qualities, the other attitudes, the other reactions that he unpacks all come from this one place. This one place of bitterness. And so he's doing it intentionally. He's showing us progressively what happens or what can happen. Watch now. When we are wronged. First, he says, bitterness comes. Bitterness, of course, is a metaphor to derived from the description of something that has an unpleasant taste. Uh, It's used to refer to the hard-heartedness and the resentment toward another person that comes because of a wrong done in the past. It describes a heart condition, and that's important. A heart condition, an attitude that easily sets up when we're wronged, especially by someone who is committed to love us. It begins as disbelief. It it, it easily moves to deep disappointment and quickly turns to a resentment that becomes incredibly relationally dangerous. We don't often see it working. What we do see is that the other person has wronged us, that the other person owes us, that the other person needs to own what they've done, that the other person needs to confess what they've done, and they need to fix what they've done. And, And guess what? By the way, all of that is true. All of that is true. While Paul earlier encouraged that righteous anger be turned into positive action, here he's warning us against what what we should and, and must call an unrighteous anger. An unrighteous anger. 
that flows out of bitterness unresolved. Bitterness, when, when it comes to us, first causes us to say to the wrongdoer, how could you? And then it moves quickly to cause us to say, how dare you? How dare you? And then finally it causes us to say, I'll get you. How could you? How dare you? I'll get you. I'll get you. They notice a change in us and they say, is everything okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You just don't know how good I'm doing. I'm doing real good. You're going to see just how good I'm doing. How could you? How dare you? I'm going to get you. I'm doing good. Not, not you. I'm sorry. You know, probably at that point in a message, you should look up. But then you'd be talking to God, I don't know, but let's move on. I'll get you. Now that, there we go. This bitterness, this, this heart condition, when it lingers, it holds fast, it grows deep, so much so that the book of Hebrews warns us famously against letting the root of bitterness set itself up in our hearts, hardening them toward others and spreading to others then in our lives. The longer, watch now, the longer this heart attitude remains on the inside, the greater the consequences it produces on the outside. That is really Paul's point here. The longer that bitterness is allowed to linger on the inside, the greater the consequences will be on the outside. Well, what are those consequences? Well, he names them, first of all. Do you see it there? Wrath. Wrath here is, a, is in the original language, is a word that speaks to an explosion of angry emotions that doesn't seem to have a good reason for it. When heart bitterness comes out in, in that way, we and others, we see it, we experience it, and, and, and we immediately want to ask, where did that come from? Have you ever been dealing with somebody and, and something doesn't go quite right and then they just erupt? And you're going, whoa, I stepped on a mind there. What, what was that? It was bitterness. Have you yourself ever been living your life thinking you're doing okay. And some particular person, and it's usually that person. You know who I'm talking about. Get out a pen, get a paper, write their name down. When that person does that much, boom! They told you I was going to get you. <laughs> I just didn't know it was going to be here and now. We go, what just happened? Where did that come from? You don't even need anybody to tell you it was over the top. You know it was over the top. It's like you lost control of yourself. What's going on? Well, it's bitterness. It's bitterness. It's bitterness. That wrath. 
Paul goes on to show us that bitterness and wrath can lead to what he calls anger. That's an internal smoldering that eventually surfaces and seeps into all areas of life. That's the kind of thing that we observe and we comment on when we see it in another person and we say, she's a bitter, she's a bitter person. Everything she does, everything she says, everywhere she goes, the bitter person brings with her a sharpness, a hardness, a harshness to all of life because of one past experience. She's a bitter, bitter person. Bitterness and wrath, Paul says, and anger can lead to something called clamor, a screaming, an outburst, or a quarrel with another person, a shouting match that shows a loss of control. You ever seen that in, in, in you? You ever seen that in one of your relationships? Um, because everybody's going to sit very still. Uh, but this, this is the kind of stuff that breaks out in marriages. And, and, and you go at it, you know. Uh, Who do you go at it? And then a day later, you're going, what was that all about? And you're going, I have no idea. How did we get to that? I, I can tell you. I can tell you. Just let me save your marriage some trouble. This is free marriage counseling. Um, which I do mainly from the, from the pulpit. I, I don't have a whole lot of time to do it elsewhere. But you got some unresolved bitterness in that marriage somewhere that is coming out. And that's what's, something's not, something's not been uh, laid to rest in your marriage when that's going on. Not only does uh, bitterness bring clamor, but it brings slander, Paul says. Slander is different from clamor in that it is, it's more discreet and it's more indirect. If, if I'm in a, in, a, in a clamorous situation with you, I'm yelling right at you. But if I'm slandering you... I'm slandering you. I'm talking to him. This guy. Yeah, do you know that guy? Be careful. Be real careful. He, he really, are you okay? I can shift. I got like 300 other men. This is my neighbor. He lives across the street from me, so I probably shouldn't have done this. If anything happens to my house, I'm going to know it's you. Okay? Can you imagine living across the street from your pastor? How careful you would have to be. Doesn't he deserve? <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get back on track. You're messing up my sermon, man. All right. So, but I, I'm going, you know, hey, hey, that guy, that guy. Yeah, yeah, you need to watch him. Do you know what he did to me? You can't trust him. I mean, you really can't trust him. So with slander, what I'm doing is I'm tearing another person down before others as a way of getting back at him. And by the way, you all are wonderful neighbors. We're so glad you're there, and we hope you never move. All right, there we go. Uh, finally, Paul points us to the fact that bitterness eventually leads to all kinds of malice. And this is the ultimate end result of bitterness. It's a settled kind of hatred and feeling of deep ill will that seeks any and every way to harm another person. Now, do you see what's happened? Do you see what's happened? Paul is speaking to believers. Paul is speaking to people who have committed to love each other. And do you see what happens? What's happened here is that bitterness has set up, and if it's not dealt with, it eventually lands at the point of hatred, at the point of malice. So that a love relationship has become a relationship marked by hatred. See, bitterness can blind believers to what is right and wrong. It can blind believers to the God-given value of those who have wronged us so that we treat them as badly or even worse than they treated us. 
This happens all the time, of course, in the world around us. The world of relationships around us is littered with love relationships gone wrong, with caring love turned to abusive hatred because of wrongs uh, uh, answered with bitterness. But here's Paul's point. This should never happen in the life of a believer. For a believer, this living the old way of the old self instead of the new way is possible, but it's relationally and it's spiritually deadly. And herein lay, and I want you to see this, the unseen power of wrong for those who belong to Christ. It isn't just that being wronged can easily make us wrongdoers ourselves. That is true, and we need to watch for that. It isn't just that, that wrongdoing by others invites more of the same from us and that we need to watch for that. The power of being wronged for a believer is actually centered right here. The failure, watch now, the failure of love in another can mean the loss of love in me. The failure of love in another, of someone who should have loved me, the failure of love in another can lead, watch now, to the loss of love in me. And for a follower of Jesus, this loss of love in my life is a huge spiritual and relational failure. It's a fail. It's a fail. It's a fail. And let me say, being wronged is disappointing. Being wronged is very painful. But losing your capacity to love others who are supposed to love you because you've been wronged by them is nothing short of a repudiation of who believers are and what their lives rest on and who their lives rest on. It means you've forgotten something. It means you've forgotten something you should be remembering. And that is why Paul begins by pleading with believers, get rid of all bitterness. Give focused attention to eliminating this ugly attitude and its actions quickly because you're called to a higher and a better way that allows you to, to decide to stay in the right even when others are in the wrong. And that explains why Paul points us next to the unconditional priority of being right. Let's look at that together. Do you see it in, at the, uh, uh, in uh, verse 32? He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Paul offers the alternative here to bitterness in the face of wrong, the right response to wrongs done. And it says much more than we see at first. And so it's important for us to pay close attention here. Paul gives believers this alternative as an unconditional command and as an unconditional priority. Even when other believers do you wrong, you must stay right. Notice with me. Paul says that in the place of a bitter heart that spews anger and abuse and eventual hatred, believers are to have tender hearts, hearts that are kind toward other believers and forgiving when they do them wrong. In the original language, the commands to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiven, giving, indicate that these things are to be, watched now, continually pursued so that they can be acquired and used. 
I should be living my life in constant pursuit of kindness, in constant pursuit of tenderheartedness with my heart, in, ki- in constant pursuit of the readiness and the ability to forgive. That ought to mark my life. Every step of my life, I ought to be pursuing kindness, tenderness, forgiveness, ready, ready, ready to be forgiving. Kindness, tenderness, kindness, tenderness, kindness, tenderness. Can I just throw this out to you? If you wait to be kind, tender, and forgiving when you need to be, you won't be. Somebody, uh, lean over to your neighbor and say, he's right. Well, come on now, I'll wait. (laughs) Lean over to your neighbor and say, he's right. I know it's hard to admit. But he is right. Kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. I want to constantly pursue it so that I can acquire it and then use it when I need to use it. So part of the idea here is the believer should live ready in advance for the wrongs that others may well do in the future by persistently pursuing these three attitudes. Let's unpack them quickly. First of all, what does it mean to be kind? To be kind to others, generally speaking, is to be helpful, to be considerate of their needs, to, uh, including those who, who hurt or offend us, regardless of what has come from them to us. So kindness functions as the attitudinal alternative to bitterness. Helpfulness is the response to harm. Okay, so yesterday my, my granddaughter Elle was in one of those uh, dance recital things, you know, where you have 492 acts. <laughs> and the, uh, the leader strategically placed the two that she's in in the middle of the 492. So you're seeing one after the other and after the... It's like, please, please. (laughs) Who knew that much dancing could happen in the world in one place in in two hours? But anyway, she was wonderful, of course. Um, She's got a little bit of her grandfather in in her. She didn't want to get off the stage when everybody else left. She was still there. It's like, (laughs) that's my girl, just like her grandfather. (laughs) Not me, the other one. I just want to be sure we're, no, probably me. And so we, 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 you know, we want to celebrate all this. So we're going to a restaurant, call, make the reservations. And it turns out we didn't need any reservations because there was nobody else there, but maybe two other families in a bigger restaurant. And they put us up on this, this uh, raised area with round tables because we had so many people. And there weren't a lot of people there, but and for some reason, probably to make it easier on the waiters, they put the two families close together. Well, you know, we, we sat down, we got our bread, we got our butter, and, and Elle plowed through those pretty quickly, and uh, we waited and waited, and she was pretty full with all the bread and the butter, and she decided she was done, and, and I thought, well, you know, you can't really expect a four-year-old to carry on an adult, mature conversation, and we're probably boring her to death, so she wanted to get down and keep practicing her dance moves. Well, that was fine, except that she's wearing these shoes with these heavy metal things on the bottom that clop, 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 and we're on this raised deal, so she's doing her moves, and it's clop, 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 and the family next to us is going clop, clop, you know, like, why don't you do something with this kid? And it says clop, 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 well, can you not see? She's got her tutu on. She's a princess. She's practicing. <laughs> I don't know. What's wrong with people today? What's wrong with people today? Well, I knew I had to do something, and, uh, and I leaned over to her, and I said, El, come here. I said, El, I need to tell you something. She said, what? I said, this is a quiet feet restaurant. <laughs> a quiet feet. <laughs> I don't know where the loud feet restaurants are, but this was a <laughs> quiet feet restaurant. And I said, uh, 
So that means we, got to, we need to be quiet and our little face just fell. I know it's awful, don't I? And I, her little face just fell. And I, and I knew I had hurt her. But as I've tried to teach you over the years, there's a difference between hurting and harming. I wasn't trying to harm her. I, was, I, I, I knew I might hurt her, but what I was trying to do was not harm the other table. Because they couldn't eat with all the clomp, clomp, clomp going on. So we figured out that we could dance in, in this quiet feet restaurant by taking off these clunky shoes that they make the, these kids wear. And sure enough, it worked. 30 seconds later, she forgot that her feelings were hurt. But she learned the value of other people and their needs. And she understood, I hope, got to start, that other people matter too. Not just, she's not just the only person who matters. But I want you to see, part of what I had to do for her was to say, okay, okay, okay. I, 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 want, I want to help you. I, I'm out of kindness to you. I want to help you, and, and it might hurt you as I'm trying to help you. You know, if i got a broken bone, as I've tried to teach you, the doctor tries to reset the broken bone, it's going to hurt. Uh, he's not trying to harm me. He's trying to help me, but it is going to hurt. Uh, what, I want, what I want you to see is that kindness is not letting a person do whatever they want to do, however they want to do it, and not hurting their feelings. Kindness is a matter of working very, very hard to be sure that they receive the help that they need, even if the help hurts. It really is a matter of healing, of seeking their healing. Now, now let me just say quickly, because I don't, I don't have a lot of time, and this is where you have to go to pass sermons, but if I have been continually toxic to my brother here, and, and I don't repent, and I'm, I'm just constantly coming at, at him, then sooner or later what he's going to have to do is he's going to have to keep me at arm's length. But he still needs to be kind to me. He still needs to try and do me good. And sometimes the, the best form of kindness is going to be for him to create a distance between him and me because I'm toxic. I'm just, I'm off the rails, and, and uh, I'm not listening. I'm not repenting. I'm not correcting myself. But I'm going to have to create a distance, and then I'm just going to have to pray for him from a distance. Uh, I'm going to have to pray God's blessing on him from a distance. I'm going to have to pray that God will do a work and, and move in his life. And that means I put him pretty close to the top of my prayer list, and I make that a persistent thing. Lord, I'm, I'm praying that you would bless him, that you would heal him. I, I pray that you, you would, would help him. And, and it's not praying, you know, Lord, just, you know, praying prayers of condemnation and other prayers, but it's, I genuinely want to see him healed. Do you know how hard it is to pray for someone who's hurt you? It's hard. But that's what love does. Eventually, if, if that person doesn't, I, I can't spend any more time on that, but that's so important, so important. He says, I want you to be kind. Then he says, I want you to be tenderhearted. And I want you to notice that tenderheartedness is, is uh, also something believers are to continually cultivate in their hearts for the sake of their relationships. To be tenderhearted is to be sympathetically understanding of the needs of others. It's the practice of making your heart look past the fault to see the need and to be moved by it. 
It is to see the wrong, own the wrong, declare the wrong. Absolutely. You don't cover it up. You don't act like it didn't happen. You, yeah, it's there. They harmed me. But it's to look past that fault and say, what is the need driving that fault? And this is always a mark of, of uh, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's something that we have to practice doing. To pause, instead of going the route of bitterness to say, I choose kindness and I choose tenderheartedness, I, I need to look past that. What is the need? At the very least, at the very least, identifying the need the person has is a way of knowing how to pray for them. Do you see? Hopefully, that's not your, your only response. You, you, you have the opportunity to begin to meet that need directly if they're not as toxic as I was to my brother here. You have an opportunity to begin to speak to that need and to meet that need, and in doing so, show the, show the kindness and the tenderheartedness of God in that dynamic. See, where, where a bitter heart makes us blind... Kindness and tenderheartedness nurtured in our hearts gives us eyes to see at a different level. Finally, kindness and tenderheartedness create the capacity to be forgiving. To uh, Paul says, to be ready with a willingness to let go of what has been done. And this, of course, is the most difficult part of God's method for responding to the wrongs done by others. To forgive is to release someone from a debt they've created by a wrong they've done. It involves a putting away of the wrong that has come between you. It is a matter of releasing and putting away the wrong that is done to us, even though it is not our natural response. But, but how do we do this? Why should we do this? I want you to look carefully. Hear, hear what Paul is actually saying and see what he is showing. What God, through Paul, is asking his people to do is to make it their priority when they are wronged to be right, to show each other nothing more than what he himself has already shown to us. And because each of these attitudes, kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, is an attitude that God himself has toward his people, they are to be the ongoing priority practices in his family of faith. We are to practice kindness like he practices kindness tenderness like he practices tenderness and forgiveness like he practices for forgiveness. Now, pause, caveat, halt, stop, just a second. Check out the other sermons, but quickly, for, for those of you who are tripping right now, um, here's the thing. God forgives when we repent. God forgives when we own our sin, confess it to him, and so this releasing and moving past it is contingent on that same thing. Now, let me just say quickly, and, and I've taught you this over the years, but some of you weren't here. There are some people who will not repent, who will not say they're sorry, who will not own what they have done. And, and when that happens in your life, there is a measure of forgiveness you can still apply. And that is, as God does for everyone who refuses to repent, it is to say, I release you. I release you, and if, as a human being, I say, I release you to God, and I will let him deal with you, but I release you, and I'm moving on. I release you to him, and I'm moving on. Now, 
just as in God's heart, I re, he will say, I release you to your sin. You want your sin? Have at it. You're going to find out that what I said is not good for you. It's not good for you. Have at it. But it is in the heart of God for all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so as I release you and say, you know, I release you to, to the Lord and, and uh, I'm moving on. I'm not going to carry this anymore. I'm also saying it in the spirit of, of I hope that one day you come to a knowledge of the truth. I hope one day that you will be made whole. That's the fundamental Christian response even to that situation. Okay? Okay? All right. I've already burned up a lot of sermon time back, backing up, but uh, maybe somebody here needs that. Do you, know, do you remember in Matthew 18, Jesus got this question from Peter. He said, how many times should I forgive my brother, someone who loves me, but who has failed me? How many times should I do it seven times? And what Jesus, was Jesus' answer? Seventy times seven. What, what was he saying? He says 70 times, seven times, believers should be right when they're wronged, should release each other from the debts they've created by the wrong they've done, putting away the wrong that has come between them. Every time the brother comes and repents, even as he does the same thing, release, release, put it away, move on with your brother. This is a very difficult word to hear, especially when you've been genuinely wrong. This wrong and staying right is no easy thing to pull off, and Paul knows that, and consequently, he moves next to tell us why we should do it before he tells us how we can do it, and that is why he says, not only be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, but look at the end of that verse. He says, as God in Christ has forgiven you, which leads us to the guidance that Paul offers next regarding the unfailing pattern for being both wronged and right. What's the pattern? What's the secret? How's it done? He says, verse 1, chapter 5, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, making himself a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I love that picture. He's wanting, he, he died to do something for us while at the same time, pleasing his father. His sacrifice was pleasing to the father. You'll notice immediately that using the therefore of verse 1, Paul links verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 with the close of chapter 4, verse 32. He says, because God in Christ forgave you, though you wronged him, you are to be imitators of God as beloved children when others wrong you. This imitating, Paul explains, is done, verse 2, as believers walk in love as Christ loved us. They walk in love as Christ gave himself up for us. They walk Walk in love as Christ made himself a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. With these verses, Paul makes plain both the motive and the model or the pattern that believers can and must use for being both wronged and right at the same time. The motive and the pattern is one and the same. It is love. It is the, the love of God the Father and the love of God the Son for them. The love of God in Christ shows us both why we should be wronged and stay right and how we can be wronged and stay right. Being wronged and staying right are precisely what Jesus did for us. He was wrong. But by God's grace and out of God's mercy and because of his own love for us, he stayed right. He didn't come down off the cross. He did not call 10,000 angels. 
He didn't violate his father's plan. Let me ask you something. You're a follower of Jesus? Where would you be? Where would you be? If Jesus had not been wrong and stayed right. Yeah, but you don't know what they've done to me. You know what? I don't know what they've done to you. I know what people have done to me, but I don't know what people have done to you. But I'll tell you what I do know about what they've done to you and what they've done to me. It's nothing compared to what we've done to him. Amen. Yeah, but you don't know. Yeah, yeah. See, you're not getting the depth of your own sin and the offense before a holy God. You're just not getting it. You're not getting it. You're not, you're not getting it. God's ultimate display of love for sinners who wronged him was redeeming them through the cross of his son. It was the greatest example of kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness that the world has ever seen. Now, the world may not be able to see it and typically can't. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you can and you have. You can and you have. Here's something that you know that if you're not careful, you're going to forget and it's going to set you up for bitterness. God's love is no ordinary love. God's love is no ordinary love. His love is not of the kind that says, I will love you until you wrong me. I will stay with you and you can count on me until you wrong me. You wrong me, I'm out of here. You wrong me, my love fails. That is not the love of God. That's the ordinary love of human, pe human beings like you and me. That is exactly where we go. That is exactly how we respond. Am I telling the truth? Telling. Okay, I'm telling it. He said so. Are you an expert on love? No. Is he right, ma'am? He's right? Okay. <laughs> Boy, the marriage counseling just gets better and better, doesn't it? His is no ordinary love. Doesn't fail. We revel in that for ourselves, but we forget that when it comes to others. His, his love is a legendary love. We have ordinary love. His is legendary. Remarkable. Once you've seen it, it transforms you. But you must never forget it. 
You know, the, uh, the old timers used to sing a song, and some, some of us in this room, I'm going to call you an old timer with this, forgive me. Forgive me. Verse 32, forgive me. Be kind in order to forgive. We used to sing a song, see, I'm an old timer. We used to sing a song, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. You know what that was, don't you? It was a declaration of the ultimate need to live at the foot of the cross so that I never forget the legendary love of God in Christ for me. And if I can live resting at the foot of the cross... I will be able to live demonstrating to you that same legendary love of Jesus. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. This is how they know is that we have an extraordinary love for each other. That even when we are wronged, we still love. So once again, Paul demonstrates that the new life in Christ is experienced with the deliberate choice of letting go of certain practices and taking others up. And in response to God's mercy in Christ, Paul calls believers to replace the old way of fostering bitterness in their hearts when wrong with living in the new way of tender kindness that is always ready to forgive the way of love made legendary by God in Christ, the love that we all live trusting in, the love that we all live resting in. And the good news is that we are called and equipped and commanded because of that legendary love of Christ for us to live with that same legendary love for others. It is something we can do because it is something he has already done. In the same way that Christ's love was legendary because his life was lived ready to tenderly, kindly forgive. Because his love was ready to release every offender from whatever offenses and debts that had or, or, or might come to him. Because that was his love, that should be ours. And while you and I know we can never just forgive and forget the wrongs we've suffered. The truth of the gospel is we, what we can do is we can forgive because we remember the cross of Jesus Christ, 
I will always remember the offense. I will always remember the wrong, even when I forget. But what my memory tells me with a far louder voice is what God in Christ has done for me. And it eclipses anything you might ever do to me. So how can we live wrong and stay right? We lived wrong and stay right by living out the legendary love we are resting in. Would you stand to your feet across the room? You know, when you think about the, uh, the work of God at the cross, you see him making three extraordinary decisions. God in Christ decided before he ever sent Christ, God in Christ decided to surrender the right to get even. He said, as I send my son, as, as, as men and women place their faith in my son, I am not going to strive to get even or make them pay. That payment will fall on my son. God made the decision not to define the offenders by their offense. He said, I'm going to send my son, and I'm not going to call you a liar. I'm not going to label you as a thief. I'm not going to label you as selfish and self-centered and adulterer, an envier, a jealous person. I'm not, going to env- I'm not going to label you any of those things. But as I send my son, I- I'm going to label you my child. God made the decision and his decision to send his son to redeem sinners. He made a decision finally not just to surrender the right to get even and not just the right to define the offender by by the offense, but he made the decision to seek good for them and to seek their healing. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, my question to you is this, who who needs from you the opportunity of those same three decisions? Toward whom do you need to make the decision not to get even, not to define them by their offense, but rather to seek good for them, to seek their healing as I've described it to you? Who needs for you to decide in advance that you will live practicing kindness and tenderheartedness and a readiness to forgive so that when their offense comes, you will be ready to say, I'm going to love you no matter what? Just like God in Christ said to me. Father God, I'm praying for two groups of people here today. I'm praying, Lord God, that uh, for every follower of Jesus, that there would be a moment right now when they would examine the condition of their hearts, whether there is 
bitterness present. Signs of wrath, signs of anger, signs of clamor. Signs of slander, signs of malice. Father, I pray that in this moment the decision will be made from this point forward to live right in spite of the fact that they've been wronged. Father, I'm praying as well for a second group of people here today who have never known the height, depth, length, and breadth of your kindness, your tenderness, your readiness to forgive them of their sin. The Father, today, I'm praying for those who for the first time are realizing what it means to say, God loves you. God loves me. Realizing that you have, out of your great grace and your great mercy, chosen to make a way so that They will not receive all that their sins have deserved so that they need not live labeled sinner, but can be labeled a sinner who's become a saint. That you've done such a work in Christ Jesus. You've made a way for them to be restored to you, made whole in you, and to become themselves vessels of kindness, tenderheartedness, and ready forgiveness. I pray that today they would find your saving love in Christ Jesus. We pray it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. So this is... Uh, is one of our current favorite songs of response. As soon as you hear the first line, you're going to say, well, that's not for me. Is it already up there? Oh, yeah. Well, they snuck it up on me. You say, that's not me. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Lean over to your neighbor and say, yes, it is. No, uh, be careful. They may be ready for bitterness. They haven't been practicing the other. This guy's a sinner. Every believer in this room is a sinner. Everybody else in this room a sinner. Every single one of us sick and sore, every single one of us needing Jesus, amen? So if today God's spoken to your heart and he's calling you, he's speaking to you about the bitterness that destroys, I wanna challenge you today to lay it down and exchange it. And ask God to grant you the fresh practice of kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. Ask our prayer team to come and take their places. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, I invite you to slip out from where you are and come meet the God who has a legendary love for you. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.